before we begin today's show. Tissot is a Swiss watch brand with a broad range of high-quality watches at attractive prices. Their style is trendy and innovative, and they bring performance and style to the game by offering painstakingly accurate timekeeping and stylish authentic watches. That's why Tissot is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. Tissot prides itself on precision and style of its classic, sport, and contemporary collections while committing to make excellence accessible to everyone. Shop the latest timepieces at TissotWatches.com. Tissot, this is your time. And follow hashtag this is your time and Tissot.us on Facebook and Instagram for more information about Tiso. Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast where we talk about the NBA. We're doing that tonight with some friends on the West Coast. Joining us from San Francisco, Nick Friedel. Nick, welcome back. B. Two weeks in, two weeks in a row for you. B, I'm here anytime you need me. Appreciate Always it. Always good to be on. And down in L.A., sure it's i wonder what he's having for dinner tonight uh kevin arnovitz what's for dinner tonight i'm gonna do a little chicken curry i got roasted carrots with kind of a cardamom yogurt and uh we're doing a peach and burrata salad because it is it is stone fruit season brian winhorse i know you are ecstatic i like burrata um all right <laughs> uh so we're recording this on sunday evening um on Monday, at some point, um, I've got a story posting I've been working on for a few months. Um, got a bunch of help from some people, Dave McMenamin specifically, um, Nick Friedel, um, uh, George Sedano. But um, it is a look back at the 2010 free agency, um, which obviously an iconic free agency 10 years ago uh, coming up here starting next week. And um, specifically, you know, Wade, LeBron, and Bosch and what happened there. Um I really focused on the, you know, the, I know everyone's talking about the decision and, um, uh, Don Van Natta had a show the Sunday night about the decision. You know, I've covered a lot of the decision in my career. I've, you know, I've, I wrote a book called LeBron Inc. where I wrote about it extensively. And the decision is certainly part of it, but I, it's not what I focused on. I, I, I'm, that it is what it is. Um, I focused more on, um, you know, the meetings, the, you know, what went down. Um, that week with all those teams coming in to meet with those guys and what happened. And, um, and then, you know, they committed, um, Wade and Bosch committed, um, on, on a Wednesday. Uh, and I, I gotta say, it's amazing. You go back and look at it, it, it. They committed on the noon sports center to Mike Wilbon at 12.01. Bosch and Wade were, uh, you know, they had been reported that they were going to Miami. It wasn't like nobody knew, but, um, Bosch and Wade were, um, in different locations and they were in three boxes and Michael Wilbon in four and a half minutes conducted an interview where he immediately got to the point. Um, they both announced their commitment to Miami, both explained why they did it. Wade explained his thinking and then Bosch explained his thinking. And then it was like, okay, good luck to you guys. And then the next night, the decision, it took 28 minutes for LeBron in, in a mess. Uh, they should have had one point. What I'm saying is they should have had Mike Wilbon handle it. It would have been done much cleaner. Um, but the thing that, uh, and this, you know, this has been discussed over, for over the years, but, um, the thing about it, uh, Nick, when I went and did all the reporting and talked to, 
I talked to people that were in every meeting. Um, some of them are on the record, some of them are not. But I talked to people who were in every meeting. And one of the things that has always been fascinating is the alternate reality is if the Chicago Bulls had somehow been able to execute um, this move because Wade and Bosch had interest in playing in Chicago. How much interest? I don't know. But, I mean, you lived through that. Um, what are, Before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, what are your memories from – and, and just the things that you've t- talked to people about over the years that you th- you think about that. Well, B, to me, the story and the conversation starts with Chris Bosch because you talk to people in that Bulls organization, including former players. Chris Bosch, he was coming to the Bulls, straight up. Chris Bosch and the Bulls were supposed to be together, at least in Chicago's mind. And then as that week played out, as I know you get into in the story, they went, oh, what, what's happening here? But as far as the Bulls were concerned, they felt like they had a commitment, at least some people in the organization did, from Chris Bosh. They felt like Dwayne Wade would follow. That uh, They hoped that that would work out, especially as the days continued into that first weekend and – then to see everything kind of fall apart in that fashion and see all three of the big guns go to Miami the way they did, uh, frankly, I, I still don't think the Bulls are all the way over it. I mean, the <laughs> the, the storyline with the Bulls always will be, always, is Derrick Rose got hurt and it changed the course of the franchise. But I can just tell you living through it, that there are still people in that organization that have not gotten over all the different things that happened that summer. Kevin, I, I think it's easy it's easy to lose this because we're so focused on not only that big threes, but big threes in history. But in leading up to that huge free agency, which was a central focus of the NBA for at least 18 months, all of these teams were talking about big twos. All, every team's plan except for the Heat, was a big two. And even into that week, the concept of the big three, about somebody putting all three together, was foreign. And that's one of the things that was difficult as I went back and put this together, is to to really tell the story, uh, you know, the idea that somebody could pull off all three of these was really unthinkable, even in that week in 2010. Well, right, And, and I'm sure you get into this in the piece, but the reason is, is salary structure. Right. Like to create essentially three max slots is I mean, and I'm sure you go through the the spreadsheet gymnastics that Pat Riley and and Ellsberg and all the folks in Miami had to go through. Because, look, there's a very there's there's very specific parameters to the cap. And, you know, guys like us who cover it just take it for granted. Fans have gotten amazingly literate um, in in sort of the, the contours of the cap. But I mean. I didn't even think it was financially possible to strip down a roster to the point where you could add three guys who were undisputably max superstars. Well, you needed about fifty million to do it all at the max, and the cap was around fifty-eight million. Right. Um, and you know, the thing was that they didn't all take the max; they took slightly less than that, which made Miami do it. Um, but so. In that moment, in that at the beginning of that time, um, you really had four teams 
who had space for two players. Uh, the New York Knicks, who famously went on a long hunt to get there. The New Jersey Nets, who had just been purchased by Mikhail Prokhorov. He had owned the team less than three months. Um, Chicago Bulls, who I thought were at the catbird seat because they had uh, space for two maxes, or at least they were very close to two. They could have gotten there. Plus, they had... Derek Rose, Taj Gibson, and Joe Kim Noah, they had drafted very well. All three of those guys were on rookie contracts, um, yeah. which is why they had space. And then you had the Heat, who had room for two, um, but they had the advantage of having Dwayne Wade already sort of in residence. And the thing that was so – one of the things that um, – you know, as I was covering it during the that week, I mean um, – I spent my time uh, at LeBron's meetings. There was uh, LeBron had an office uh, in an office building in Cleveland, and there was a little elevator lobby, and there was a cafe off the elevator lobby that people came and basically bought bagels and coffee at. And uh, there was four little uh, tables in there, and I made sort of a deal with the woman who was the proprietor that I would be able to sit there all day long, um, as long as I had materials that i bought so i just bought a series of bottles of water um and watched people come in and out of the elevator and you know um yeah i wish i'd been in the meetings but um it was amazing to watch you know the miami or the um wait brian i hate to interrupt but i i just i love this i'm imagining you going up i'll have one andy's candies for 10 cents (laughs) and then an hour later it's like is that a pair okay like because i know those those are like those sort of corporate office building delis which are yes um, and I'm just like, I'm at, all right, what is it this hour? I mean, it was a very – I'll have a Snapple. Yes, that's like, right. Um, so I basically was just and, – and Twitter was in its infancy. Um, I remember at the start of the week, I had 17,000 followers. And after those three days, I had shot up to 35,000 because I was um, tweeting like the arrivals, you know, the comings and goings. And basically all I was seeing was um, who was coming in and on and off the elevator, basically reporting who was there. And um, – you know, I just remember that the Nets were the first one in, and uh, Prokhorov came in with Jay-Z. And um, I talked to Avery Johnson uh, for the piece. Avery had just been hired as the head coach. And the Nets that day uh, started in New York. They flew over in Prokhorov's G5 over to uh, Cleveland. Uh, Jay-Z came with them, and they went and pitched LeBron for a couple hours. And it was a very impressive crew. You know, Prokhorov is, you know, 6'8", uh, you know, it was in like a five or, I don't know, $10,000 suit for all I know. Avery, um, Brett Yormark, their CEO, uh, Rod Thorne, uh, their GM, you know, it's a very impressive crew. And then um, they pitched for a couple of hours and um, and Jay-Z st- stayed behind and got like an extra 15-minute meeting. And, and Jay-Z in the meeting like really appealed to LeBron their friendship and selling New York. The problem was they were going to be playing in New Jersey the next two years. They had won like 14 games the year before. And so, you know, they were just kind of early. Um, and like Jay-Z like literally left and the Knicks come in like immediately after Jay-Z leaves. They passed each other uh, in the garage. And the Knicks, um, you know, Jim Dolan is not Mikhail Prokhorov, uh, Donnie Walsh, who was their GM, had just had surgery. He was in a wheelchair. And actually, out of respect to Donnie, who was a legend, I did not report that he was in a wheelchair. But he also had a neck brace on. Um, and uh, they did bring Alan Houston, 
Um, but like in that moment, you're like, they're both selling New York and you're like, boy, one crew looks different than the other. And, um, so that was the first day of the LeBron meetings. Meanwhile, in Chicago on the first day, um, Wade and Bosch are both in Chicago. Uh, their agent, Henry Thomas, who has passed away, but played a huge role in this, um, was based in Chicago. And so Wade and Bosch came to Chicago, even though neither of them, you know, are from or Wade's from Chicago, but neither based in Chicago at that point. But, you know, huge home court advantage for the Bulls. They're in town. So the Bulls um, meet with Wade and Bosch the same day. Um, Wade comes up first, and the uh, it's at the United Center. And Wade, the Bulls are not convinced that Wade is ever going to leave the Heat. And so they have this full presentation ready for Bosch, this full presentation ready for LeBron. But they only give Wade like 40% of it because they thought he was going to take – that and immediately go to um, the Heat and give them the Heat the, the, his strategy. They didn't trust that he was truly a free agent. Um, Nick, did you feel at the time that anybody really thought that Wade actually wanted to come to Chicago? I'm talking about like at the start of this. No, the if you go back in time, B, it was exactly as you just described. Well, let's see what happens with Dwayne. But the focus early on was Chris Bosh. And, and of course, the focus was always going to be on LeBron. I mean, like early, early on in the process. And going back in time, I was just looking through some of my notes. The Bulls made these iPads individualized for each player. And they had a member of their staff deliver them that first night of July 1. Yeah. And, and for Bulls fans, who delivered Chris Bosch's iPad to him in Texas? That would be my man Chuck Swirsky, a longtime play-by-play guy for the Bulls who knew Bosch dating back to his days in Toronto. But the point was, in those first hours, those that first day or two, it's exactly what you described. LeBron was it. Can I say, like, the, the iPads came in, like, a, a metal – case like you would give somebody a, a case full of money in uh, yeah yeah and the, they have like these really All super out. um uh is that kind of win you over is like a really impressive ipad <laughs> but i mean i guess it was something right they were they were ahead <laughs> you can't of have a hello time. kitty case i mean <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, and for people that are, are trying to figure out what this looked like what we're trying to describe when you go to a restaurant and you see a restaurant have a menu that's suited for what they have to offer. That's what the Bulls were trying to sell in that moment. It, it had lists of schools for, for the players that had kids. It had uh, tips about the city. Uh, B, I know you get into, there were pitches from Oprah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there, there, were, there were all kinds of different layers to each player's iPad. Uh, and the Bulls took a lot of pride in the time, in the work that they're uh, their media department put into those pitches because any question they felt like any free agent had would be answered by hitting a button. Uh, but the point is, in that moment, the feeling was, let's get Bosch. Maybe he can sway Wade, and then who knows what can happen with LeBron. But early on, and this ties back to what we said at the beginning, there was such a a feeling of, Chris Bosch is coming to Chicago, and at least we have that first domino that we need. Yeah, so um, while Wade – but here's the, here's the thing. Wade loves the pitch. 
slips on a Bulls number three jersey, which is in his – he actually had a film crew with him. It's in his documentary that just came out. And like if you look at his face when he puts on the jersey, like there's a twinkle in his eye. And, it's a forty-eight million dollar um, twinkle a few years later. But we <laughs> well, that. that's true. That's that's for another story <laughs> down the road. So, um, meanwhile, also in Chicago, the Miami Heat, the Heat's first um, stop, they come to Chicago. So, you know, the Heat are in Chicago while Wade is meeting with the Bulls and getting their forty percent pitch or whatever. Guess what's being pulled out of the. The little velvet bag in a, in the conference room and it's CAA where uh, Henry Thomas worked, the rings. And when I interviewed Chris Bosch for this, I, I wish this is one of those things where you wish you had the video. When Bosch described the moment that Riley put the rings down, he was like, "Boom, big boy talk. Here's my rings." And um, at the end of the meeting, now in the meeting, the, the Heat, you know, look, their their pitch is very simple: three is greater than two. That was their pitch. I mean, you know, yes, come to Miami. We have no state income tax. It's a beautiful place. You know, we have our history. Alonzo Mourning was there, talked about winning a title. Um, at the end of the meeting, Pat Riley hands Chris Bosch a 2006 Miami Heat championship ring. Says, this is for you. You hold on to it till you win one. You can give it back to me. Um, which probably is a violation <laughs> of some rule. Um, but... Uh, by the way, he never gave it back to him. He still has it. <laughs> he said he's, he kept it. Um, has a couple of his own anyway. So then Bosch and Wade switch places. Um, Bosch goes to meet with the, with the Bulls and a pitch that the Bulls thought went great. Right, Nick? Absolutely. They, I, Chris Bosch, according to <laughs> more than one person in the organization, said that I'm coming to play for the Bulls. Straight up. He said, I'm coming to play for the Bulls. This is where I'm going to be. So um, Wade has his meeting with the Heat. Uh, it's home. That's, you know, it's very comfortable for him. Although during the previous year, um, there had been some animosity between Riley and, and when Wade. Wade was a little frustrated that the Heat had, you know, basically cleared the decks for LeBron. Um, and, you know, they did make the playoffs. They were a playoff team, which should be noted. Um, all these teams that, you know, the, the Knicks and Nets were awful, but the, the, the Heat made the playoffs despite clearing their salary books. Um, and they were, they showed Dwayne, they're like, look, by the end of this week, we're going to have only one guy on the roster that's going to be Mario Chalmers. And we're going to have the money. We're going to do this. We're going to get, you know, we're going to get Chris and LeBron and can you help us get them? And, um, Wade really knows Riley, you know, and he, he's never seen him more nervous, but the way Bosch, and LeBron described Riley in those meetings was like Godfather boss man, but Wade sees him as very nervous. But they pitch him the three. But that night, as the Heat get in Mickey Arison's jet, which was a G five. By the way, I kept notes of all the jets they were flying. Uh, Prokhorov had a G five. Mickey Arison was rolling in a G five. The Knicks were rolling in a G four. So make of that what you will. Um, so. By the way, as a, as an aside, the Nets, after meeting with LeBron in Cleveland, then fly on to Chicago um, and meet with Bosch and Wade also in Chicago that night. And um, they had uh, – you know where they had lunch to plan for their meeting with Bosch, uh, Nick? Um, they, they, uh, they had a late lunch at Gibson's. Oh, pure Chicago, an, right? An iconic – iconic, uh, have you been to Gibson's, Kevin? I have not. 
uh, classic Midwest steakhouse. Uh, last time I was in Gibson's was over All-Star Weekend, and uh, I ran into Mark Eversley there, um, who's now the head the GM of the Bulls. So how about that? <laughs> anyway, um, and they said as they were flying back to New York that night, so they pitched LeBron, Wade, and Bosch the same day. The, the Nets did. Um, the, you know, as they're flying back, Avery tells me that he's talking to Rod Thorne on the plane. And, and by the way, Jay Z didn't go to Chicago. Jay Z went and got in a different plane. And you know, I don't know, I don't know if he went went to New York or wherever. But he didn't. Wade and Bosch didn't get Jay Z, just LeBron. <laughs> um, but uh, Avery told me that when they, you know he and Rod Thorne were talking, and they were like, "These guys aren't coming to New York. They're going to play together." They didn't know where. But Avery was like, these guys are going to play together. That was so Avery had that read. And I will say this about Avery. Avery was the first guy in the league to tell me, like, LeBron's going back to Cleveland. Uh, so Avery has got a good read for this kind of stuff. So anyway, um, that night, the Heat fly to Cleveland because they're getting ready to pitch LeBron the next day. The the velvet bag, uh, Bosch said it looked like a Crown Royal bag that Riley was carrying his rings in. Um. Henry Thomas, Wade's agent, calls the Bulls and says, hey, Dwayne wants another meeting tomorrow. And Nick, do you remember, you know, what do you remember about this where the Bulls weren't even sure Wade was serious? And next thing you know, they want to say they, they, they're, they're feeling good about Bosch because whatever was said was said. And now they get a call from Wade. Hey, let's have another meeting tomorrow. There was that weekend, that first weekend. And there was a feeling certainly in Chicago that all of a sudden Bosch and Wade were on the way. And I can still remember turning on SportsCenter, you're talking to people in the organization, you're going, is this thing really going to happen? Are they going to land Bosch and Wade? Is this the moment in time? And there was about a 48-hour stretch there where the Bulls already confident in what they felt like they had heard from Bosch went, whoa, are we going to be able to play Dwayne Wade Derek Rose, Joakim Noah, Taj Gibson, Chris Bosch together. And B, I know you get deep into this in the piece, but to me, this is where uh, the Bulls had two things working against them in the moment, aside from the fact that, as we learn much later, all three guys wanted to play together. One, Tom Thibodeau had just become coach of the Bulls. So while he had a great reputation around the league, and certainly the, these guys have all spoke glowingly over time about being able to talk basketball with him and the X's and O's. He wasn't Tibbs yet on a, on a bigger platform. He hadn't developed that kind of head coaching reputation. And secondly, and most importantly to me, is the Derrick Rose factor. And Derrick famously in, in those years said, I'm rolling with Keith. Talking about Keith Bogans, because he was so loyal to <laughs> Keith Bogans. I mean, people still laugh, but that, that is why Derrick Rose, if I could describe why Derrick Rose was so beloved in one story for his teammates, not just Keith Bogans, is because he was so incredibly loyal to the guys on his team and the guys he believed in. And he said, I'm rolling with Keith. And again, to this day, because this summer was so, so important on so many levels, the Bulls officials and the people that lived it, they always wonder if Derek had taken more of the center stage approach in the recruiting aspect of things. Would that have changed 
what ultimately happened. Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But, Kevin, the Heat fly to Cleveland that night. Wade says he's never seen Pat Riley more nervous. The Bulls, to a certain extent, must have done really well in their meeting with Bosch. And now they – by the way, it was reported. It wasn't like it was unknown. It became public that Wade wanted a second meeting. Even though the Heat were on the verge of the greatest – one of the greatest coups in the history of NBA front office dumb, I wonder how well they all slept that night in Cleveland. You know, it's funny. Hearing you guys tell this story, you forget – and someone said it earlier – just how Chicago just had everything, right? Like like Rose is essentially – if you add two to Rose, you have a big three, right? Like Noah's establishing himself as – this finesse center on offense who's one of the three or four best defenders in the league. Um, it's like they had a they were stacked. And you know, it's funny, looking back, we tend to forget that. We we tend to forget that if you were sort of drawing up a pros and cons two sides of the ledger for each of the five teams that are pitching, that Say nothing of the pedigree of the organization. Like it's funny to hear Nick's talk about this media production because it's like you're the freaking Bulls. <laughs> like you're the Bulls. You're the Chicago Bulls. So you're in a top three city and you're the most prolific team in North American professional sports in the last 20 years because you've won – you have six titles. Um, it's like – and so it, this, is, this is a fun exercise because I just forget. Like of course he's nervous. Like the Bulls have like a ton of cards in the deck. Hey, real quick, I just wanted to take a quick pause here to tell you about an important story in the sports world. On Tuesday at 7.30 Eastern, ESPN presents the film Blackfeet Boxing about the fight for respect, identity, and acknowledgement. There are no scorecards or knockouts on the reservation. The prize at the Blackfeet Boxing Club is far more vital, survival. According to the United States Justice Department, Native American women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than non-Native women. More than one in three has suffered rape or attempted rape, and more than 80% will experience violence at some point in their lives. On the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana, these are not statistics. They are stories of lives, of families, of loss, and pain. Again, tune in Tuesday, June 30th on ESPN at 730 Eastern for Blackfeet Boxing. So um, Riley meets with Leon Rose, who is LeBron's agent now, president of the Knicks, uh, meets with him that night at midnight at the Ritz-Carlton in Cleveland. Um, and basically, again, their their pitch is three is greater than two. So on day two of free agency, the Heat come in and pitch LeBron. They get there 45 minutes before LeBron does. Uh, Mickey Harrison, Nick Harrison, his son, who is um, now the CEO of the Heat, um, Alonzo Mourning, Andy Ellisberg, who's their now their GM, but when he was number, he's Riley's number two, whatever his title was then. Uh, Riley and Eric Spolstra. And by the way, I want to point something out. Um, out of the six teams that pitched LeBron, okay, all of the people that came, um, owners, GMs, presidents, players, almost all of them are gone. <laughs> um, Jim Dolan is the only guy. I guess uh, Alan Houston is still with the Knicks, but uh, Jim Dolan and Alan Houston. Whatever Allen's role is, Jerry Reinsdorf, um, I guess J- uh, John Paxson is still with him. All six of those folks are still with the with the Heat. All of them. Ten years later, they're all still there. And by the way, they had all been there for ten or fifteen years when that happened. So anyway, they come in. Um, they come in forty five minutes early to get set up. Riley is pacing the hall outside the conference room, um, like before a big game, getting ready for his pitch for LeBron. 
Um, meanwhile, over in Chicago, the Bulls have their second meeting with with Wade, and this time they bring it all. No more holding back. They go for the full pitch. And here's the incredible irony. Wade says to them, can you get room for a third star? So the Bulls were afraid that Wade was going to take their strategy to the Heat when what actually happened was Wade brought the Heat strategy to the Bulls. And this is the big moment in NBA history. For months, the Bulls had been planning for two. They hadn't planned for three. Same with uh, – I talked to Mike D'Antoni, who was the coach of the Knicks, and um, you know he talks about the pitches that he gave because they came to Chicago and also pitched Wade and Bosch too. But there were all these private jets flying between Cleveland and Chicago those days. And you know D'Antoni goes, we were pitching two. The Heat were pitching three. They blew us out of the water. But – the Bulls had not spent all this time preparing for three. They had spent all this time preparing for two. They, the concept of three caught them off guard. And as you said, Nick, they kind of thought that their big three might be their number one overall pick, Derrick Rose. And so now the Bulls feel good about Bosch, and they feel like they may have Wade. And here is Wade bringing to them. They haven't even met with LeBron yet. They're the last team to go. Um, they have met with LeBron, and here's Wade sort of bringing them could you get a third? They needed $18 million in salary cap space to do it, and they just didn't have a lot of options. Now, this right here is the crux of history. The Heat had the advantage of, of – and, and, and the Heat had been making little teeny moves along the way. They, they made a deal at draft night where they traded away their first-round pick into Quan Cook, and it cleared $3 million bucks. And they, they did a buyout with James Jones, although they later re-signed him. They cleared 500000 and And they were on – they had talked about they – they found a place to trade Michael Beasley, which cleared another, another $5 million. They were They were at about the five-yard line of getting the money. The Bulls were – completely caught off guard but here they were presented with the fact that they could get all three and their actions over the next 48 hours um basically are a moment in history nick um the bulls sat down and um just trust me that i talked to people involved in all these organizations not all of it's on the record but the Bulls sat down and had a conversation with jerry reinsdorf and they said the only way that we think we could do this is by trading Luol Deng. Um, and they either had to trade Luol Deng to a team that could just take all of his salary. And by the way, Luol Deng was a good player. He had not yet been an all-star. He actually had the best year of his career the next year. He made the all-star team for the first time. He had four years and $48 million left on his contract. And so they either needed to take, um, have somebody take all of the money, or they needed to use Luol Deng in a sign-and-trade to Toronto, Cleveland, or Miami for one of those three guys in a sign-and-trade. That's what they needed. You know, they, they might have had to trade another player or two. They might have had to lose Taj Gibson um, to make the space, but that's what they needed. They also needed the commitments. Let's not put that. So, Kevin, the team that they call is a team that you're very familiar with, the LA Clippers. LA Clippers came and pitched LeBron, um, but they had cap space for one star. They didn't have the, the two-man pitch. Um, the Clippers were sitting there, and the Bulls thought there was a chance that they might, in that 24-hour period, could they trade Luol Deng to the Clippers? And uh, you helped me with this story. So 
Now I hand it over to you as to what happened there. Right, because the Clippers have this hole at the three spot. I mean, it's it's hard to remember, but they were kind of an up-and-coming young nucleus. Griffin looked fantastic. Um, Eric Gordon was a pretty solid top 10 pick, was sort of building a reputation as a two-way guard, really strong, could shoot. Um, you know, Kamen, you know, at the time was a pretty in – in a league where the center position was pretty, you know, not very deep. He was there. So they, they had this sort of – this core, and, and Barron was there who had a, you know, relationship – with LeBron. Um, and so, hey, they're looking for a three. They're probably not going to get LeBron. Would you like Luol Deng in the remaining, how much was it, Brian? It was like at least four, three or four years, right? Four years, 48 million left on his yeah. contract. So basically, would you like to absorb Deng? And that's a pretty decent, certainly not a contender, but that's a decent core because Deng is still a good player. Um, and, and they said no, largely because, uh, and it, it's interesting, it, you already were getting a harbinger of the following summer. I mean, the Clippers were of the opinion that, look, the worm is turning. Yes, Sterling's still there, but like Blake Griffin's a star. He's going to be the best finisher in the league. We are, we have in the Los Angeles market, you know, we don't play in the sports arena. I mean, this is a real arena, Staples Center. You know, we have one of the best training facilities. So this was very much kind of a, we talk about player empowerment. This is a Clipper empowerment moment. This is the moment they think they can totally change the fortune of the franchise, but they're going to hold that spot. For a superstar. Now, that spot becomes Chris Paul's a year later. But at the time, it was just like, dang, eh, now we're tied in. Now that spot is gone for the foreseeable future because we're going to have to pay all these young guys. Uh, like, like, can we go for – do we want the Blake Griffin era to be – and Luol Deng. And Deng is a nice player, but he's not nice enough. So, Nick, um, so this is the thing. Like, could they have somehow found something for Deng? Um, they did talk to the Raptors. The Raptors knew Bosch was gone. So they did talk to the Raptors, and the Raptors, I think, might have considered doing a sign-and-trade. But, of course, they needed Bosch to say, I'm going to Chicago to do that. So this is it. This is it, um, Nick. I mean, only LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris really know how close it was. But for a brief flicker of a moment, the concept of a lineup of Derrick Rose, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James – Chris Bosch and Joe Kim Noah was there, but they were not able to clear the space and they were not able to get the commitments. Now, from talking to people in the Bulls organization, they really did try. Um, now, I tracked, I went and talked to some teams where they could have traded Dang and they said, hey, the Bulls didn't call us. But in talking to people in Chicago, they really did try. Um, and then they went to Cleveland and met with LeBron, but they met with LeBron without Derrick Rose. And, you know, everybody in the Chicago organization, they love Derrick to this day. And, and as you mentioned before, they had defend him. They go, listen, he's 21 years old. It's not who he was. Um, and I don't know, it was not in his personality to do what Steph Curry did when he came and sat with Kevin Durant in the Hamptons and said, come with me. I, I I will subjugate and we will share and we will win titles together. That was not who Rose was. I mean, Curry is a different guy than Rose. Rose had a video on on the iPad given to LeBron. Um, Rose had a video saying, hey, come play with me. That was essentially it. Um, Joe Kim Noah was the player. Well, go ahead. You, 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 you know, go ahead, Nick. I mean, you... You know, Joe Kim Noah was the guy who wanted to recruit LeBron. The problem was no one and LeBron hated each other already. <laughs> uh, B, it's so fascinating listening through all the layers here, and there there are so many. What I would add quickly for context, going back to Dang, 
Dang turned into an all-star, and he really owes those next couple contracts to Tibbs because uh, Tom Thibodeau got the most out of Luol Deng. But in that moment, with four years, $48 million left, there were a lot of people not only in Chicago and the Bulls organization, but around the league. Four years, 48 right now in 2020 doesn't seem like much at all. Four years, 48 then, it was like, God, Dang's contract is not very good. But here's the thing. Should the Bulls have like been offering... Here, take two first-round draft picks, too. They should have offered, in hindsight, they should have offered anything because that team that you described with Joakim coming into his own, Derek uh, would then go on to win the MVP award, Taj Gibson, LeBron, <laughs> Wade, and Bosch, that team wins the title, period. The next well, they year. won 60 games next year anyway. They exactly. Got that Carlos Boozer, Cal uh, Corver. yeah. That team was unbelievable, and that's why the Bulls – personnel uh, they will always hold out that soft spot for what could have been because there's no doubt in their minds at all that they could have won that next title but but to your point about Joakim and this is where this thing is it's just so interesting you and I were at this game it was in December uh, the year prior and I don't know if we can say this word but we can say it come on okay Joakim called LeBron a Midway through the game. Midway through the game. LeBron was dancing in front of the Bulls bench. Literally, he was dancing. They were taking fake pictures. And Joakim was like, you're a bitch. And LeBron not only heard it, but Joakim didn't back off. He he meant exactly what he said. Another reason why he was so beloved in that Bulls locker room, because he stood the Bulls were getting crushed. But he stood up for everybody on that bench because everybody's like, is this guy for real? Talking about LeBron. And Joe Keem, right to his face, called him a <laughs> So let's fast forward. Uh, six months later, Derek, and it's so interesting to me, B, because I talked to Dwayne Wade about this the year after. And Dwayne Wade said, Derek Rose is right now, pride-wise, where I used to be. And he said, there will come a time when Derek knows that he can't do it on his own and he's going to need other stars to help him win a title. But in that moment, Derek thought that he could be the best player on a team that won a title. Well, he won the MVP. He wasn't totally wrong. He, he wasn't off, but but history has proven that they probably always needed that one extra piece. And that's the difference now. I mean, that's, what, that's why the Bulls feel so strongly that if maybe going back in time Derek had taken a more vocal approach that they could have landed these guys but here's the key six months later Joe Keem who recruited players for Urban Meyer at the University of Florida that was part of his role everybody remembers the two titles that he won in Gainesville Urban Meyer would take some of his big recruits that would come in to see the University of Florida the football recruits and he would bring them to Joe Keem and he would say hey Joe Hey, tell them all about Gainesville. Make sure that, that they become Gators. The Bulls knew this. The Bulls put Joakim as the front for all the recruiting that they did. So Joakim is is talking to Bosch. I believe he talked to Wade. And I will always remember this. Later that summer, after all these decisions had come down, I had gone to Joakim's camp in Queens. And we're sitting there. I had one of those old camera flip phones out. And we're going through who he talked to, when he talked to them. And he gets this big smile on his face and he says, I reached out to LeBron. He never called me back. 
and I went, oh man, because and so that's the thing. Like, like back into to me it because they all they respected each other, LeBron and Joe. But I always think that had that episode in Cleveland not taken place the way it did, and had Derek been the one who had been pushing the way Steph did years later, as you described with the Warriors with Kevin Durant, would things have been different, and would they have worked out differently? Well, you know, that's a trigger word for LeBron, too, because years later, when he gets into it with Draymond in the finals, Draymond said the same thing to him. And uh, by the way, um, I wrote about this in, in my book, uh, The Return of the King, that I did with Dave McMenamin. LeBron answered both Draymond and Drake Joachim with the exact same answer, um, six, seven years apart, which was on the court. He said, uh, I'm a man and I'm a father. Uh, that's not who I am. That's a trigger word. You don't ever, you say that to LeBron, that's almost the worst thing you can say to him. Um, and look, at the end of the day, maybe LeBron didn't want to go to Chicago. Like, maybe that was the thing. And, and there are people in this league who are like, look, Wade was never leaving. It was all, uh, you know, don't fall for this charade that Chicago was in it. You know, that's just to make it look like it wasn't done deal in Miami. Hey, look, man, I can't see inside those guys' heads. I'm just telling you, having done this reporting, you know, it was what it was. So, um, so by the way, the Cavs meet with LeBron on the last day, and the Cavs and the Bulls go last. The Cavs go second to last. The Cavs had just won two 60-win seasons, and they had you know, sacrificed everything they had to all these draft picks and everything to get guys like Antoine Jameson and Shaquille O'Neal and Ben Wallace. And you know, they're just kind of chasing, trying to keep the team together. So they just they didn't have cap space. So, so their only real pitch to him to improve the team was, um, hey, uh, we, have, we can do a sign and trade with Toronto um, for Bosch involving Anderson Verizon. That was the player that they wanted. Uh, maybe some other pieces. Um, would you mind helping us recruit Bosch? And uh, because Bosch, <laughs> Bosch would not call the Cavs back, you know. And, and I don't blame Bosch for it because the, the Cavs didn't have cap space. And you know, meanwhile, Bosch is meeting with all these teams. He's like, I don't, you don't have cap space. Um, and LeBron told the Cavs, according to what I was told, um, hey, I don't, I don't really know Chris that well. I don't know what he's doing, and. Uh, I don't know how well he knew Chris. I know he'd been on his Team USA in a bunch of All-Star games. He was about to be his teammate. But um, So, look, at the end of the day, we get to um, – to it's a July 4th on a uh, – just like this year, July 4th is on a Saturday. Or no, July 4th was on a Sunday, uh, this year on Saturday. So, so July 4th is a Sunday. The, the meetings had gone for all these guys um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday – or uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And um, so it's July 4th, and Wade, Bosch, and LeBron get on a conference call. Now, look, um, there are certain people who feel like they had decided to play together for years, that this was lined up for years. The Cavs later pretty much accused the Heat of tampering. Um, they didn't formally do it. They didn't formally file a request, but they like, uh, spent tens of thousands of dollars on an investigation, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what's true. Um, I just know that on this call on July 4th, uh, they decide, you know, it's Chicago. It, you know, basically in the final analysis, you know, New York wasn't good enough and they could only get two. The Nets were out. They were playing in New Jersey. Um, LeBron was, was open to leaving Cleveland. Bosch had no interest in playing in Cleveland. So, you you, you know, they met with the Clippers as a, as a courtesy. And as Ke- Kevin, as you mentioned, by the way, they meet with Leon Rose. Clippers is a quick aside here. The Clippers get to pre- make their presentation to Leon Rose a year later. Chris Paul, players a trade. Guess who Chris Paul's agent is? So, 
you know, the Clippers, it was, they got something out of it, but they weren't in it. So really it comes down to this phone call. They're talking about Chicago and Miami. Miami's got the three spots. They're, they're almost there. And they have the state income tax advantage so that, you know, the money goes a little farther. You know, they had actionable plans to get other people. Mike Miller was on, was on the line. Um, and uh, they decide on the call. They're going to Miami. Uh, July 4th. And that's the, that's the real giant piece of history. Um, July 4th, 2010. Brian, you know, listening to you, and it, it, as we said, we can't get in the mind of these guys, but I also wonder if there was another factor, you know, the fact that Chicago had a stacked team actually work against them in this sense, you know, the three of them get together, they go to Miami, they are the Miami heat. Like at the end of the day, Chicago is sort of this pre-existing entity right the bulls i mean derrick rose was you know what one year removed from an mvp award and you know joining the bulls whereas you're kind of creating the heat obviously the culture was there and and riley and and the rest of it um and there's some mystique around the heat they're 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 regarded as a gold standard franchise in terms of culture and, and all that stuff but you know just listening to you it's like all right so we can go to chicago where we can be the heat like we, we can just sort of lay down, we'll bring in the guys we want as role players. Um, and I just wonder, just listening, like that would seem more appealing to me. But uh, Kevin, I'd push back, I'd, I'd push back quickly on, on this part of it. In that moment in time, it was more hope and hype around Derek and Joe than it was reality. The Bulls were selling, they were selling Derek's going to be great and Joe Keem can really turn into a player. And it's one other uh, important key uh, to note. The Bulls, on top of everything else, guys, as we're going back through all the, the selling points, they were selling the city and the brand of the Chicago Bulls. And here, Kevin, this is where I think, and again, as, as B said, only LeBron, Bosch, and Wade know, but that, I think, at least in the moment, might have played against the Bulls. Because instead of thinking of, oh, this team could be really good with Derrick Rose and Joakim Noah, it was, hey, this is Jordan's team still. This is Michael's team. Do we want to win with Michael's team? And I remember in that moment, there was a lot of talk, not only around the organization, but in the city of, do these guys, especially LeBron, does he want to take on that mantle the same way uh, or go to a brand new fresh start? with a team that has had success, certainly, but didn't have that kind of mystique around. The other, the other thing, let's not undersell the fact that Pat Riley was the guy. He's his track record, and he's a champion, and he had the rings. You know, In addition to the fact that these guys may just want, prefer to live in Miami versus Chicago. Um, you know, if Pat Riley was running the Bulls, maybe they would have been. I mean, and it's not even to take a shot at the Bulls. I mean, if Riley was one of the greatest executives of all time if pat riley is running the bulls maybe the bulls do close you know um and, and i still say i still say b if tom thibodeau had had the success that year had one year under his belt as the bulls coach instead of coming in when he did fresh nobody really knowing him as a head coach i think that could have changed it too i really do yeah um i will never know so the heat obviously closed. there's more in the story about stuff that happened after they committed because uh, the Heat, you know, there was a couple of sign and trades that got negotiated. Um, just one little detail before we go. After the decision, the next day, 
Pat Riley calls the Heat or calls Cleveland and says, hey, do you want to do a sign and trade? And the sign and trade was important for the Heat because doing the sign and trade allowed the Heat to reduce the amount they were giving LeBron the first year so that they had maneuverability to make other signings. They, it was really, they really wanted to do it. Um, but he, he thought he might get hung up on because you know the Heat had a plan for this, but then they saw Dan Gilbert's letter. And the Heat were like, you know, even in the euphoria of LeBron committing, they were like, well, forget about the sign and trade. So Riley calls the Cavs, Chris Grant, who's just become the GM, and, and Chris says, all right, I'll, I'll see if I can talk Dan Gilbert into it. I don't know if I can talk him into it. He calls Dan Gilbert, who's in Idaho at the Sun Valley Media Conference, and says, um, We've got to do the sign and trade. It's um, you know it's vital as bad as we are right now. We have to we have to get something out of this. We can't lose it for nothing. And so Chris talks him into granting the sign and trade. Like less than twelve hours after the after the release of that letter, he, um, he talks him into actually helping LeBron out because it meant more money for LeBron, um, which is a miracle in itself. That was a conversation I'd like to have been on too. I'd like to have been on those two calls: the uh, the three way call between Bosch Wade and LeBron, and the the call with Dan Gilbert. They convinced to trade him, and by the way, gives up his rights to really complain for tampering because they hey, traded him. Brian, I have a question yeah. for you. I was thinking about, and you might know: was the letter that Gilbert wrote strictly impulse? Did it go up? Did it go by a corporate PR person, or did he just did he just rip it out? Well, I don't know for sure, but it wasn't formatted like a press release. Honestly, right. it was clearly it was, not. Yeah, it was Comic Sans, which is the way, which is the way Dan Gilbert right. wrote all emails. But in, we live in a world where guys like that rarely do anything without corporate consultation, yeah. media relations. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what kind of made it so I, I raw and beautiful. I doubt. I can't say for sure, but I doubt they would be able to stop him. But the one thing I will say before we go, the one last detail, but there's a lot of other stuff in the story, trust me. But do you know what the Cavs – so the Cavs call the Heat back um, with their offer for <laughs> the LeBron sign and trade. Now, keep in mind, they have the cap space. They've done the deal. They, they Beasley was traded. All they had on their roster was Mario Chalmers making less than $2 million. They had over fifty million a record over fifty million in cap space. They had it. They didn't need to sign and trade him. What do you think the Cavs' first offer was uh, to trade LeBron James? I have no idea. And, and by the way, let me just point out they had already Bosch had committed a day before LeBron, so they had already worked out a sign and trade with Toronto. Toronto got two first round picks. So they'd already kind of set that the fact that you know they were going to pay multiple first for Bosch. So keep that as the baseline. Friedel, you want to take a guess? I, I, I want you to tell me. They asked for four first-round picks and two pick swaps. <laughs> Did they even have that to give after the Toronto deal? Uh, or it I'm, would go to like 2042 or something. Well, they, they had an extra – so they had Toronto's pick. Um, and so one of the one of the picks that the Heat traded to Toronto was their pick back. Right. So, it w- but it was over like the maximum amount of years you could do it. It was like over seven or eight years. And um, the Heat said no. They ended up giving two firsts and two seconds and a pick swap. And um, the last pick that was in that package uh, was was a 2015 first round pick that they actually ended up using to trade for Kevin Love after LeBron came back. So. Um, uh, but anyway, oh, um, wow! I hope you I, that's kind this of hilarious. Song. Like he, LeBron becomes the beneficiary of the pick that right. was tr- <laughs> traded to 
you know, look, I'm not going to sit here and, and defend anything the Cavs ever did. I will yeah. just say that they started the the first step that they made to their 2016 championship happened 12 hours after the decision. When they right after the letter, obviously. Yes. By the way, when, when they, I call the letter beautiful, I meant only in its absurdity. It, you know, in that night, I had been through so much that week. Um, when the, when I got the the letter in my email, um, I laughed hysterically. Like I couldn't even work for a few minutes because, and it wasn't that I thought it was funny. It was just that it was absurd. And it was sort of a stress, uh, tension relief. Um, I just remember just laughing, laughing. A grand finale. Like, I just can't believe this. It's absurd. Um, but I will say that the, the first step that the Cavs took towards winning their 2016 title happened 12 hours after the decision in agreeing to that sign and trade. And a year later, the Cavs drafted Kyrie Irving and Tristan Thompson. So they, within a wow. year, they had drafted two of the five starters that they needed and they had assets that ended up helping them get Kevin Love, but that's another podcast. I um, I, I, I want to add this real quick, because now I'm I'm interested after Kevin's question. I am so intrigued as LeBron, Wade, and Bosch watched the Last Dance if they had second thoughts about the decision that they made in 2010, because it's one thing to win a couple titles in Miami. That's great. And anytime you win a title, it should be celebrated. But it's different winning titles in Chicago. That city adored that Tibbs team with with Derrick Rose and Joakim Noah. That city would have completely been obsessed with LeBron, Wade, Bosh, Derrick, Joe. They would have absolutely andrew's making comments is that, I, is I know I, I i just can't imagine how popular that team would have been the closest thing we've seen to jordan's bulls as we're That's going the point though but these. therein lies therein lies the answer the closest right. thing too so there what you you're go. saying is is as much adoration and worship as the 2011 chicago bulls with wade and and and, and lebron and bosh like it would never come well, it maybe comes close but it would never surpass their favorite favorite team, and that's why I at least I think in the moment I think that was working against the Chicago Bulls. And then you also, if they don't do it, it's why can't you be more like your brother? Right, like <laughs> four years. Well, look, I'll say this: I'm not going to say there wasn't moments of regret throughout that Heat run. Um, LeBron's first Finals there, Spolstra, the way he coached the first year, um, you know. But I would say on balance knowing all of the people involved and having talked to them not only every day during that run, but in the years since, I would say that there is no regrets for anything that happened for those three guys. They loved it. Um, even though it was challenging at times, they had a great time in Miami and the heat, even though the heat, um, it ended up cutting, sort of cutting short. Um, you know, they regret the rally that they had, <laughs> you know, they regret LeBron regrets the, I'm taking my talents beach decision came off but he doesn't regret doing it he doesn't regret having the show he doesn't regret the you know the empowerment and all that but um you know i had heard dribs obviously over the years it's been analyzed the bulls it's not like this is the first time it's been analyzed but in in totality with this 10-year space um it really was fascinating just how close it was and it really was you know the crazy thing is i covered this every single day for years 
and you know every single angle and how many times I I talked to the Knicks or talked about the Knicks and I remember LeBron coming back to New York for the first time after he signed with the Heat and like getting grilled by the media you know uh, whatever but when you look at it when you take a step back and look at it it really was three is greater than two that was it three is greater than two and um, the Heat had the three and the Bulls could have gotten there but didn't quite and all these other circumstances and it just comes down that's the final analysis um, so but I appreciated talking with you guys about it and I, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed coming down memory lane with us so um, at least we didn't talk about the bubble thank God um, alright thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective Podcast thank you Kevin thank you Mr. Friedel thank you to Troy back in Connecticut thank you to Andrew Hahn we will talk to you in a few days and we'll get back to our bubble talk I promise Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride from the thrill of the revving engine and pure adrenaline of flying down the highway to the confidence of knowing that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service. But Ari Snyder has one reason in particular. I had extremely large upper arms. They won't even fit into most shirts. Thankfully, biking really embraces vest culture, so I feel accepted. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.